When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving higher in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find a seat. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. I got Rich Possum back on here for his monthly rundown of the economy. Rich, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, Casey. Thank you for having me on again. Oh man, I look forward to this every time. So we've got a lot of moving parts here. You got, you know, this this Chinese bounce back after COVID thing is just not happening uh, the way people thought it was going to be. Um, uh, you talk about uh, what we see happening in the grain market right now. We've got um, like right now, and I'm looking at my ticker here. This is my my early morning. Well, the close yesterday, corn closed. December corn was at 475, and beans were at November beans were at 1305 and a quarter. And so that's a pretty significant slide from what we saw even in a week. I mean that that's been a pretty significant slide down. Um, and then we start looking at real estate, even though. Uh, the interest rates are what they are, which I thought would kind of start to slow things and deter, deter things in my area here in my little town that I have where there's not that many houses for sale anyway. Usually when you sell a house here, it takes nine months to sell, but they're selling within, you know, 24 hours to a week uh, off, off the marketplace. So I want to hit on that a little bit too. So, so Rich, let's start with, let's start with China first um, because that, that is really kind of got a, has the entire world 
kind of on pins and needles a little bit. Um, the rebound out of out of uh, COVID is not what the rest of the world saw when they re you know when the rest of the world rebounded out of out of it. You saw some really nice um, kind of curve back up. You know, commodities started flowing, uh, money started flowing again. People were buying stuff, going on trips, this that another thing, and we just aren't seeing that uh, out of China. So I guess what are your what are your thoughts there, and what are some of the driving factors behind the slow build back up of China after COVID? Yeah, I think the slow buildup uh, relates more to their people and their government in the sense that it took so long to fight COVID and to try to get out of all that business of shutting down economy and lockdowns and things like that. And I think the people are, are disappointed that it's uh, taken this long. They just don't like the way things uh, worked out. And they're not happy with their investments. They're not happy with real estate. They're not happy with the government. Um, it's just an overall negative feeling. And it's holding back their economy. And this week we got news that they're not going to report on uh, the younger of the employment situation. Okay, So this scared people that, oh, they don't want to show us how bad the unemployment is for uh, young people. And therefore, yet again, we can't trust how they're reporting things. So made an, an uneasiness feeling here of where they're going. If you look on a longer term basis, you can see industrial production as a percent of change had been in decline really from the 2000s into two uh, last year, did rebound a little bit, kind of rolling back down again. So you can see that, hey, they're producing more and more, but the yearly increase is not keeping up as the past, okay? Things are not as exciting. Things are not as fast growth, but it's still growth. They're still moving forward. They're producing. Now, if you look at property investment, you see the same pattern. It's been declining at least since, say, 2010, okay? You're just seeing less money pumped in. Now, they did have a spike uh, off of the COVID that money pumped in, started boosting the real estate, trying to keep their economy together and survive COVID, but it quickly collapsed. And that, and they've had issues all along of really building too much real estate. And even uh, global economists were worried of a contagion in recent years here uh, from China that could uh, cause problems for the rest of the world, the U.S. and whatnot. Uh, didn't materialize. It was pretty much contained in China, but they had issues, a lot of bankruptcy, major bankruptcies like our 2008 uh, Lehman uh, mm -hmm. financial crisis when they went under. Okay. Then you look at retail sales and retail sales, um, I'm trying to look at my chart here, probably peaked out, I don't know, around 2010 and have been declining ever since. So you can see the people within China are not necessarily consuming more and more. They're not buying. They, they're buying more. It's just at a slower and slower pace. Okay. Yeah. And that worries people that someday that just tops out and they just don't buy anymore. Well, then you can't really grow your economy. Then you have fixed assets and investments. That's really been in decline since early 2000, believe it or not. Yes, it had a, a collapse in 2020 and then a total rebound and even a nice increase uh, in 2021. Uh, but in 2022 on into this year, it's been eroding back again. And you can see the world has an issue with 
how much do they really want to invest in China? And last week, I believe Biden started to push to uh, restrict additional investment of the U.S. into high tech in China. So we know we have this trade war lingering stuff since Trump that's still there, making an uneasiness of where where we're going. And it's holding back business. And the world is in a deglobalization mood. Countries are trying to get back to producing more of their own, don't rely on China so much. All of these are stresses and pressures on China. And, you know, it's discouraged people a bit when when it is a moment when China should be building domestic economy, worrying a little less about its exports, which it's losing in a way. But that could actually be our benefit. Some Wall Streeters are trying to make it a negative for us. But I'm in the camp that's saying it could be a positive benefit, meaning China's probably lowering prices to try to sustain its exports to us as well as other countries. Um, so I think it's going to be a plus eventually here. But it's no question China needs to build its, its, its domestic economy. Well, they may have done something here this week. Uh, if you look at interest rates in uh, China, um, they're, they're equivalent of our Fed Reserve rates, if you will. Uh, they've really been in decline since uh, 2019, but they're now lower than what was in 2020 with the COVID, uh, lower than the U.S. by quite a bit. I think it's two and a half uh, versus our, what, four and a half, four, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so, but they, they, they put it down that low uh, just in recent days here. So that sent a message that they're trying to boost their economy and help out here. But it's interesting how people behave to any given data. Uh, some of them will take a negative aspect. Some of them take a positive aspect. There'll be this debate of short-term, long-term, and they're at least short-term viewing it as a negative. Ooh, China's trying to help their economy, therefore the economy's in trouble. So there's this increase in discussion of recession, okay? And, uh, and some people think they're already in it. They're not by my measurements, but I can see how I'm not looking at the right things or have the rice bias of all the things that you would look at. Uh, so, uh, and yet on a longer term basis, some people are saying, yeah, but China's doing the correct thing and they'll win. Uh, there's a little concern in our country and it's bothered our stock market here in the, in the last couple of days as well, that can there be a contagion from the U.S.? Well, so far I've heard this, about contagion worries since the year 2000, and I can tell you it's never worked out. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make that bad. I'm sticking to my forecast, being optimistic of the U.S. But uh, we do have to understand that China has issues here, and I fully disclose and admit that to what three months ago I jumped on board with Goldman Sachs and a few other big banks because I felt like they had the better inside data in China. And they became more optimistic of China. So I became more optimistic and I dialed that in my modeling, but my modeling is so diverse that I made sure I was looking to make, make sure there would be moments that I wouldn't make too much of a deal out of it and shoot myself in the foot. And, and that worked out for me. But nevertheless, as of today, the economy should have been better than this. And I'm concerned in this sluggishness is what I'm going to call it. Maybe it'll get worse. I'm concerned it's lasting into next year. But I still don't view that as a negative for the U.S. economy. I don't view that as a negative for the U.S. stock market um, or even our other financial uh, side of things. But it does concern me on the commodity side. Um, granted, they're still going to have to buy X amount of commodities no matter what. 
But I think they're going to be more cautious of how much they pay. I think they'll yeah. be careful. I think they're more than willing to tighten their belts and buy less and draw down their inventories. And uh, I also think when you look at Brazil, hey, they're going to be ready to plant the next crop. And they plant more every year if they possibly can. And they have the land to do it. And uh, so we have to be cautious here about dialing in aggressive, beautiful exports uh, to China. Uh, I think it's coming, but I think it could be a long ways out yet. Okay, so um, I'm trying to think what else I missed on China. I do know their currency is also stronger than what they want. And it's as strong as it was in 2007. That's probably not a plus for them uh, at this time. So lots of issues with China. I think we want to be cautious that some of that will be overblown by some analysts and economists and kind of scare people. I just don't view it a problem for Europe. I don't view it a problem for the U.S. Yeah. Okay, the other question I had on China while we were talking about, and you kind of hit on it a minute, was I've read a lot of articles about um, uh, retail demand, like you hit on a little bit, and how that was kind of dragging along. And you hit on the uh, the the, the younger uh, working population. A lot of Chinese are looking at wanting to go into, you know, more tech related jobs and less manufacturing factory style job jobs. And that is throwing a wrench in their, um, in their economy too, because so much of their population is over 60 years old and, and the amount of the, of the population that is there and the, and the amount of, of, of what we would consider to be the, the, the working age uh, 20 to, you know, whatever, 50, whatever they, however they measure that is, is almost like 25% of the population. So I guess, is that some of that driving factor there where you're seeing there's just a younger population that doesn't want to go into manufacturing and they're holding out for different jobs? Or, or I mean, I guess, have you read into that at all and, and seen any articles about that? Yes. Um, and I do think that's a, a general characteristic around the world, frankly, that the young people also want the hot, sure. flashiest jobs. And sure. who can complain them? Because, the, you know, any kind of special, if it's a new industry, you always get paid more than mm-hmm. another industry because, hey, you're taking on risk of possibly joining a company that won't exist in a few years. Right. So right. so it does provide the better, uh, better jobs there just because from a risk premium point of view. And then it's exciting. You know, it's yeah. just it's just more exciting, and yeah, I um, I don't know how well they're going to steer the people. I'm sure some people think, well, it's communism; they'll push them in those jobs whether they like it or not. Uh, it's a big population. I don't know if it works that well. And the president is under a lot of pressure. I, I do yeah. not believe the uh, <laughs> I don't think the Chinese people are happy with their president yeah. and their government right now. Yep. Okay. Well, you hit on the other thing we all wanted to jump into, and that was talking about commodities, what we see happening there. Over the last um, three weeks, really, it's just been a, a downward spiral on, on all the commodities, whether you're talking um, wheat, corn, soybeans, India, you, you name it. It's been, it's been there. Um, you know, looking at uh, what we see happening in soybeans, what we see happening in corn, especially we look at December corn right now, my ticker was 475 at the close yesterday, like I talked about beforehand, um, at, at the open, I'm sure it'll it'll start out down, just like it has every <laughs> every other morning. Uh, we've seen that. This is harvest low time, so we're seeing that. Um, I've heard a lot of people throw out 450 and 430, 425, and those kind of things. Rich, I guess as you look at your technicals and, and look at the things that you're paying attention to, what's your thought on, on the December corn and what's your thought on uh, soybeans as things set today? 
Yeah, I, uh, I won't go against the analysts looking for 54-25 in uh, December corner. I think you're probably in the, in the right ballpark. I do. I'm more of a timer, meaning I'm looking for the amount of time they're going to sell. And and then when does that selling exhaust? Because if you read uh, supply and demand textbooks, free market economic books, we're led to believe that demand's smart enough to come in create the bottom. That's not how it works, really. Uh, it, you've got to get the seller to get the price low enough to the seller says, I don't give a damn. <laughs> I'm not selling it any lower. I'm done. Okay. Or, in fact, they have nothing left to sell. Yeah. Then you create the bottom. Then the demand side can be a small amount that comes in and puts the price up at least somewhat, and it suddenly wakes people up, gets them thinking, and then you get a little more demand. Then you actually get the news. And then maybe even the solid fundamental data like change of the S&Ds in your grain markets. And this is why people miss bottoms and tops if they're watching just the S&Ds. They're basically going to come in on the way up or on the way down, not near the bottoms or tops or whatever. And I think we're in a typical uh, market here that's probably going lower into late September to early October. Uh, I think seasonally the grains normally bottom first week of October. Uh, that's probably corn, soybeans. Um, granted, it can bottom in September and soybeans can even bottom in November. But I'm not suggesting it's just lower and lower in October. Um, we may put the brakes on moving forward. It may not be as fast a drop now. And I always, I don't know, for decades, I've felt like the market bounces a little in August, but sometimes you barely even notice it. It's just a blip up and it's all over. I do think we can get that blip, but for some reason it's coming in later uh, than I would expect most year, near near August, on into early September. And as I warned my subscribers weeks ago, I, I said, especially when the corn market topped as early as it did, I said, you know, I'm probably going to continue talking about a bounce in August and maybe a little early September or something. But I said, I think that top's going to come in lower than any top along the way down into it. That is it's not useful. I don't want to buy it just for that. I don't want to trade it just for that. And I said, I'm sorry, I, I got to focus on the most important kind of trend that occurred during the year. And I said, I think that's down into maybe early October. And I said, that sounds like a normal seasonal decline. And that's what I've noticed in the news. I kind of use some of this Twitter stuff as a polling kind of thing. And you can see people are saying, well, everybody's on board with the seasonal bearishness. It's harvest time. We're going to harvest the grain. The price is going down. And so I think the model picked up on that well in advance of return to that seasonal. And I may make adjustments here on this timing for my subscribers, and we'll try to do the best we can, all these little twists and turns. But honestly, if you're a bull, I think you better learn how to be quick and nimble. Um, I just don't think there's much here, but I don't want to scare people of a, you know, a death drop here in the greens either. I think there's going to be lingering demand along the way, but I think it's going to be muddy. I think it's going to be soft until we can get a bunch of that crop harvested. I think that's when everybody's going to assume we'll get the better accurate numbers out of USDA because they've seen what's coming off the, the combine. And uh, and then hopefully we're going to set up seasonal demand from October into next summer. That's my mm -hmm. general gut feeling. Uh, that's nothing of precision or detailed. Uh, we've got a long ways to go here, get the data and see what next year looks like. But I think that's a general pattern. We're setting up, bring it down low enough, get the harvest out of the way, and then we, then we can talk about some higher prices. So anyways, those prices you threw at me, I uh, yeah, they're, they're around my table.
Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, this is the uh, this is the first year. I mean, that I really have seen it to this level where in you take a, take a given state, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, whatever, <clears throat> Ohio, Nebraska, wherever you're going to look at that right there in that the key um, uh, corn uh, corn belt right there, corn soybean belt, and the the mixed information coming out of those states of um, man, it's the best crop I'm ever going to have. To yeah, it looks good from the road, but it, <laughs> when I walk out there, it's not that great. And oh, hey, you know what? This is the worst crop I've ever had. All within that same state in those areas is is really kind of. Um, I, I think to me, it's telling a, a pretty good story that yeah, from the road, a lot of this stuff looks good. That was in that really heavily drought stricken area early on in the growing season. Um, you know, it's tall green corn, everything looks good like it should. And then you walk out in the field and it's not what you would expect to see with a plant, the way it looks from the road. So I think we're seeing a lot of that. It's going to be very interesting to watch how the corn market plays out going into, um, the October, November report when USDA starts getting some of that, some of that data back a little bit. Um, unfortunately though, I don't think we'll see a big, a big change in, um, what they, you know, what the market, market driving factors as far as what, you know, bushels per acre and those kind of things look like until January. And I think that's going to be uh, kind of blowing the top off of things a little bit, especially when we see where we're at with demand, where we're at with uh, supply and all those things. And it's going to be uh, unfortunate just, you know, how the USD operates. It'll be January before any kind of big move makes any one way or the other. So it'll be interesting to watch how this fall plays out. Yeah. I give it because even even if we put the low season lows in in October, and we're ready to set the seasonal up move, that could, that could be a struggle getting started. Because the next question is, okay, now we got a good handle on the supply, worry of demand. Well, if we still got issues uh, in China I, um, and Russia, Ukraine still going, I don't know. I, I, it just feels like it could be slow developing that demand story here uh, for a while yet, and uh, so. As always, we'll see what we get here. But I, uh, yeah, I, I can't come up with any really optimistic story here in the next sixty days for big up moves in the grains. If it occurs, they're probably going to put it right back down. Yeah, and the the, the pro farmer crop tour when it comes out, that's going to have a big that'll have a big move in the marketplace. I mean, I think um, if we see something where they come out and start saying, because I've seen a lot of stuff where they're talking, you know, it's not you know fourteen to sixteen or sixteen to eighteen round. It's we're seeing. 10 to 12, 12 to 14 rounds. So I mean, that's, that's really going to start messing with bushels. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to watch that come out and, and really start to have a factor in the market and how that, cause that could have, that could have an explosive. If yep. they come out and say, Hey, you know what? It looks great, but the yield's not there. We're looking at a one, you know, 172 bushel uh, corn crop, you know, all of a sudden that, that changes the way people are looking at things. Yeah. So, all right. On that topic, I've been watching a lot of, uh, you know, I figured interest rates would slow some of this down, but I just I'm not seeing it, and but I'm not following it as close as a guy like you does either. But when I'm looking at what's going on in um, the real estate marketplace, I'm still watching um, twenty to thirty thousand dollar an acre, um, you know, I state ground being sold. I'm watching stuff in Nebraska being sold for fifteen to eighteen, nineteen thousand bucks an acre. I've been watching stuff all over the place being sold like that. You look at housing market, like we talked about a little bit. When we started out. Um, Seems like in certain pockets of the of the country that we're seeing some um, some some migration still from the post COVID migration. We're still seeing people moving to areas, and where 
there may be an issue someplace else. It's a bit of a booming market someplace else when you look at overall real estate rich. So I guess a guy that follows real estate quite a bit, what's your, uh, I guess, what's your synopsis of the overall real estate market in the United States right now? Right. If you are still seeing homes go off the market pretty quick, um, if, what I'm learning, it's a mentality of, well, never going to get cheaper. And they're learning to adjust to this, this high interest rate. But I can tell you, boy, if homes need a lot of fixing up, then they're, they're starting to move much slower, okay, mm-hmm. uh, just because of the building costs. But it is interesting where we're seeing new homes built and you see the same attitude. Well, it's not going to get any cheaper. You see homes still being upgraded um, and the same story, well, it's not going to get any cheaper. I'm seeing building on farms where they're saying, well, things aren't going to get cheaper, you know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but this interest rate thing, it has cooled things off here, and especially on the mortgage side. And even this week's report showed, again, uh, less mortgages being made, okay. And the sentiment and the housing side, national sentiment index of, of home builders, it declined by an additional amount here. It's not really pessimistic. I think they feel like they'll always get enough homes sold, that it's not like the 2008, 2009 period and things crashed and burned, um, but they do see things backing off a bit, but they think they're going to get get their price and get a get enough bill. But the sentiment did back off. They're not as optimistic uh, right at the moment of where they're going for these new homes. And as a little bit of an insight, just a dramatic change that took place for anybody that had to get a mortgage on a home. That if you, uh, if we said, okay, we're going to raise anybody's pay who, who was getting a mortgage, buying a home, we're going to raise their pay enough so that it will feel like they were paying a home price before the pandemic, we'd have to raise their income by 69%. Okay. Wow. Well, that's not happening, but that's that's a big move. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and there's a variety of calculations: sixty-five, seventy-five percent, something like that. Um, now, U.S. home prices um, to, to 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 do it the other way. Let's say we drop the home price and don't raise the pay. How much do we have to drop the home price? Thirty-five to forty-five percent. Okay. Uh that's well. That hasn't happened yet. They're, they're off a few percent. You hear some regions off 15%, but most of it's just kind of coming down. Many areas are still going up. They're just not going up as fast. Instead of going up 10 15% like we saw each year over the last two years, it's going up 2 5%, something like that. Now, another way of looking at it, if you um, uh, drop the interest rate on the mortgage, we'd probably have to drop it three and a half, four and a half percentage points. So, you know, if you've got a 7% uh, loan, well, we got to drop it down to 4 or 3%. Well, that doesn't seem to be happening in time now. Right. Uh, right. Soon. So, yeah. I mean, that's just how shocking it is of what has occurred here in the past few years uh, on this mortgage side. But yet it's fascinating. You watch these people, they step in there and buy that home anyways, uh, even though mm-hmm. they're paying 30% more than it was a couple of years ago, and they're paying a gigantic rate on the mortgages, you know. And uh, so business is still flowing, but we can see cracks within uh, all these metrics uh, watching of different prices. And I'm going to stay with my forecast. Prices are going down in 2025, but I just want to warn everybody, it may be that they actually went higher in 2020. It's just slower and slower pace. So when I show the rate of change, it went down into 25. But I, I think we're going to see actual national prices down by 2025. I don't know how much. But I'm just saying it's it's getting out of hand. I, I think it's 
I think it's peaking, and I'll stay with that uh, that forecast. And I can see it that yeah, it's we're still seeing some homes sell fast, but you can see increasing. It's the better and better home. Yeah, okay? it's the higher and the, stuff. The more yeah. desirable home. Okay, mm-hmm. if your home's <clears throat> not so desirable, you're finding it's it's a struggle to sell them. Yeah, now. that was one of the things during during the uh, the COVID period where building prices got so high that people quit building the new house and they were just going in and getting the materials and, and remodeling what they have. And now we're starting to kind of see a little bit of a flip of that, at least what I've read anyway, that, that you're starting to see more, not that housing starts are way up by any means, but more people are stepping back and saying like, well, if I got to spend, you know, if I'm completely remodel my house, it's going to cost me $150,000 to go in and, and get it and bring it all back out. And it's going to cost me, 300,000 to go buy this new house over here. It's probably better for me just to go buy the new house over here and not this. Yeah. We're seeing ev- seeing evidence of that at uh, Home yeah. Depot. I mean, this yeah. year this year their sales really uh, slumped on that. Yeah. So you're starting to see that the whole HGTV um, effect kind of wore off a little bit from COVID, I guess a little bit. So yeah. take a look at that. Yeah. All right. Last thing, Rich, and you hit on it already was interest rates. Um, where things are now, I, I've, my wife and I always pay attention to what's going on in the real estate market, and neither one of us are going to move unless someone has a gun to our head. But <laughs> it's it's going to be, um, you know, like my current interest rate on my house, I think something like two seven five, and I'm looking at some of these house housing stuff out there in the in the sevens, and I'm like, just to your point, you know, you have to buy half the house to to maintain the same payment that you're paying now. And as you're looking at um, what the Feds talk about doing, they talked about having one more. Um, in 2023, and Chairman Powell's a man of his word. He's not gonna. He's not gonna not do something that he said he was gonna do. So, I guess between now and the end of the year, Rich, do you think there will be another uh, price increase or price increase, interest rate increase, um, as far as uh, the Fed's concerned, or do you feel like maybe with what you've talked about on your podcast, um, we've seen some inflation numbers really start to come down and, and the, the economy starting to react to what we see happening that some of this. Uh, interest rate talk might just stop and we just kind of maintain what we have for a while. Yeah, I, I'm going to lean towards they're not going to raise in September. Uh, that's looking at my own data, my own gut feeling, but it's not necessarily that predictive. The Fed can do anything it wants. Sure. But I'm kind of comfortable with joining the bigger banks like Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and JP Morgan, I should say, and then Morgan Stanley. It does they're leaning towards of um, no hike, but I almost think it's like me Bank America saying, yes, they will hike. So there's still some big boys out there that are, are saying they'll hike. Um, I, I, I don't know. I just feel like I hopefully it's not dialing in my own gut feeling that I wouldn't raise and I wouldn't. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like they're not going to raise. And some of the recent comments of some of the members on the FOMC, or even non-FOMC uh, presidents in some of those uh, regions of, of the Federal Reserve. Uh, but we don't know for sure. Uh, I think if they raise another quarter point, we'll survive it. Markets will be okay. They might be down short term, but they'll probably be up uh, farther out. And I think it'll just increase the odds of people saying, okay, they won't raise in November. Uh, but I think we'll skip the September, and then we'll have to reevaluate whether to do it again in November. Uh, it seems to me the consensus is growing now towards uh, the Federal Reserve actually lowering rates sometime in the first half next year. And that might be a little ahead of what they were thinking in, in the past. Uh, whether they'll be right, I don't know. It's polling and sometimes polling <laughs> 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 that just doesn't get it right. Um, right. 
But I, I'm feeling more comfortable as I look further out uh, to next year. Nothing has changed in my stock market forecast being bullish through next year. Um, we're going to have setbacks. We're going to have worries. We're seeing one now. But it's seasonally. They normally like to sell this time of year. Normally, we do get a little negative news. So far, it's okay. It's understandable. Uh, hope it doesn't go any lower because uh, I didn't do much about it personally in, in my trading. Uh, but I gave my signals for people so they could do something. But my gut feeling is it ought to bounce in September, back by early October for another little seasonal selling wave. But overall, I'm pretty comfortable being bullish into next year and even into the end of the year. But how bullish is the question, okay? I view this negative news as more of a, a headwind at times than a, a negative driver uh, on the stock market. And the same thing for the economy. We're at 2.4%, but this week we learned from the Atlanta uh, Fed, Georgia Fed, um, they have a little thing that they use. I can't think of the name of it now. Uh, but anyway, I think it's GDP now. But it came in at uh, 5% GDP now in near-term future. And here we're at 2.4. Well, if you study the air percent error, you can make a case they could be way too high on that. So as of this morning, some of the people I follow and some of this stuff, they're saying, well, let's say it's anywhere from two and a half to four and a half, something like that. But the point is, uh, it's, it's leaning towards probably better than what a lot of uh, investors and business people are calculating for GDP. I, I think we're doing well. I think it's pointing the right direction. It's giving us the right attitude and mood here. Is it really 5%? Probably not. That's probably too high. But uh, it does, and I'm seeing, I see many Bank America took a look at consumers of what they're spending. And it doesn't look like that's going away anytime soon. It supports my model of forecasting saying it's going to do well next year. And the economy is going to do well. The stock market, you know, there's money there to be spent. And I think they really spent it in July. Retail <coughs> sales of our own jumped to 0.7% when the polling said 04 so they were really off the mark. That's okay. It's a rough number to calculate. But it was just as high or higher than in May. It was up in May, a little bit off in June, and up in uh, July. When I looked at the overall trend, I think it's up for the year. Now, it is one of those sideways indicators, so I'm not saying it's going up and up and up. I'm just saying it's strong. I, I think it's supportive of what I'm looking at. I think 2.4% GDP, even if that's where we settle uh, for the third quarter this year and seasonally, we normally do back off on the fourth quarter. But I think by the time we get in the first, second, third quarters of next year, you're going to find it's going to be above 2.4. I think we're headed for three, three and a half, maybe four. Okay. So um, I like where we're at for the economy. The economy is, is strong. And uh, there's a few sluggish indicators, but some of those I've figured out they're behaving in a weird manner. And I think it is nothing but can be at the look at the pattern, the timeline from COVID all the way up to date, all through the inflation lockdown, the money printing. And the bottom line is um, I'm going to win on this. <laughs> we're going to have we're going to have a good economy, good stock. Market. I tell you, got to hit us with an asteroid to to mess this up for me, okay? Yeah. Uh, I just I just don't see it. But we, there's always short-term drops along the way. We're experiencing one now, and there's going to be more. And some of them I'll get nail them, and some of them I won't. But overall, I, I'm just not seeing what's really going to screw this up uh, for us on this economy. I think we're okay uh, for a while here. Right on. Okay. All right, Rich. Talk a little bit about your podcast and where they can find that at. Okay, go to criticalpointpod.com. 
You'll find information about myself. You'll find a little blog that I update once in a while, a little free stuff. Uh, you'll find a link that takes you over to another site for all the audio and videos we put out on the podcast. Some of them are free. Most of them are locked up. There's a place to subscribe there as well as each individual uh, video audio. There's also at criticalpoint.com. Um, a separate page there just for uh, signing up. But my podcast updates uh, every morning. I do a morning brief of the uh, grain markets. I do a morning brief of the stock market, but will include some interest rates and a few other things going on in the economy. Then on Thursday, I do a weekly update. So that can get lengthy, uh, 35, 45 minutes, one for the grains, one for the stock market. But the stock market, go, I go over anything and everything. I'll look at gold, Bitcoin, oil, dollar, interest rates, the economy, and then uh, the stock market, which I primarily use the S&P 500, but basically NASDAQ, Dow Jones do the same thing. I'm not a stock picker. I find that quite difficult, actually. And for my own investments, it's uh, 98% of just stock index type investments, but, and I use a little leverage that to help compete against stock pickers. And by looking back at my own 10 plus year uh, track record, I've probably ranked in the top 10 or 15% of the nation here, if I can believe the statistics shown by other money managers. Okay. So I like what I do. It's sometimes strange and difficult to explain. I know it's narrow focus in the sense I don't pick stocks and help out in that regard. But I think for those who love picking stocks and they ought to look at investing in the entire stock market at times as something different. And they also look at the stock market impacting their individual stocks. Sometimes they're right on why the stock should go up and yet it went down anyways because it was in line with the stock market. And these computers, when they trade, they might actually be buying the five biggest stocks in the stock market, but they do all this other types of spread trading with them and helps lift the entire stock market. Well, it works the other way when they sell. So there's some value there for the stock pickers, and then there's value there for the people who uh, like to do a little something different in the sense of investing in the entire stock market is, is uh, how I summarize it. And, uh, and then I explain that, where people can pick out these funds that will allow them uh, to invest in something like the S&P 500 index. And because uh, they, they those funds work great. If you come home at night and you see the S&P 500 up 2% in the day, you'll probably find those funds are up 2%. And if you buy the leverage funds, you're probably up 4%. Okay. And it works the other way when it goes down. So this has worked well for me for years. And I really appreciate these business cycles I work with because not only does it help us in investing, but it also helps us over in the grains for hedge decisions, but also helps just businesses making decisions of, is this going to be a good year or a bad year? And I do have a once a decade sell signal, believe it or not. Once a decade, <coughs> the economy falls into recession. You can have other recessions during the decade, but generally the most important is once a decade. And when that business model says you're going into a recession, it would normally have already triggered an equivalent sell signal in the stock market. And the stock market has always fallen 20 to 50 percent, sometimes more when you look back over the past uh, 150 years. So I find that is uh, very valuable information because even if I can't tell you the detailed story and get it right of what makes it fall or what makes it go up, I can tell you the bias saying, okay, here's some of the things to look at. And the investors are going to be more focused on the bad or the good, something like that. But more importantly, I can tell you the time frame 
and when we expect something's going to hit the fan, <laughs> okay? And I think that's very important information, and uh, I think I got a cheap price on my service, but part of that is because I don't write a newsletter. It's all video, audio, and it really makes things more efficient, timely, quick for me, and I will throw in separate alerts at times. Suddenly, there'll be an audio saying, okay, I'm triggering a level one sale. This thing's going down in the next 30 days. If you need to do something, pay attention. Otherwise, you know, write it out and have an understanding why it's occurring mm-hmm. and and then be optimistic of for, for the future in terms of my long-term forecast. So, yeah. <clears throat> so for all of you out there, listen, uh, I, I listen to, to Rich's stuff. And if you go to uh, out on Apple, The Critical Point uh, podcast, and you look up that, Rich does put out, not every day, but, you know, I'd say three or four times a week he put out. Uh, you know, something about stocks or something about the commodities or just something about that's on your mind, you know, and you put it out there to quick hitters, you know, they're seven, 10 minutes long and they give you a good, a good point of doing that. But what Rich is putting out there is I would say very contrarian to what you see happening out on any other MS, like watching MSNBC or, or Fox business or any of those places like that. What Rich is putting out there is, is different to what, what they're going out there. And I, I would say, uh, uh, you're, you're you're right more often than than the talking heads on TV are. So uh, if you're really interested in what's going on and understanding what that market looks like, Rich's stuff is for the it's a bargain for what for what it costs to uh, get your uh, your subscription. So what's that cost, Rich? If you want people want to subscribe to your stuff, it's uh, twenty nine dollars a month. Twenty nine dollars a month. There you go. <clears throat> I think that's pretty cheap. I've watched other guys put stuff on on the same the the bigger names out there. That's a hell of a lot more than twenty nine dollars a month. So. Rich, uh, keep up your good work, man, and we appreciate you being on the podcast. All right. Thank you. All right. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast. Check out the video version over on the YouTube channel, which is the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel, and you can see everything that's Moving Iron related at movingironllc.com, blog posts and whatnot are all up there as well. So with that, I am Casey Seymour with Rich Possum. Let's move some iron, folks. Out. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving higher in the 21st century.